Welcome everybody again to Encounter Church. We're so glad to be able to worship together. Nothing can keep us from worshiping God. Amen. All right, we're in a series right now called But God. And the idea behind this series is taking a look at all these different passages in the Bible where the author says something happened, but God, but God showed up, but God intervened, but God did something incredible. And the future would never be the same as the past. So what we did is we kicked this one off last weekend, Easter weekend, from Acts chapter 13 where we read that Jesus died But God raised him from the dead. And because that happened, anything can happen. And so throughout this series, the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at these but God passages in the Bible. Next week, we're going to see the the Nehemiah story and see how sometimes we fail, but God shows up amidst those failures. The week after that, we're going to see in Genesis how families have this unique way of dissolving, of falling apart, but God shows up and does something incredible in spite of all of it. Today, though, we're taking a look at the future. And we're taking a look at how sometimes an uncertain future makes us uncomfortable, uneasy, and maybe even afraid. And so what we're going to do is take a look at just how the future is and shaping up. And I came across a book a little while ago um, that was just kind of titled, like, Things for the Next Millennium. How the next millennia, the next thousand years are going to be unique and different. And it was just a a way for different celebrities and authors, sports figures, politicians, just to write down as their predictions for the next millennium, I think the name was. And that's what they did. And so just how do you think the future is going to be different? Go ahead. Leave it in the comment section below as well. What you think is going to be different in the next thousand years or maybe just the next hundred years. How is it going to be different? Now, some of them in the, in the book, as I mentioned, they said, I think the world is going to have like a single unified language and a single unified currency. That's probably optimistic. Another person said, I think we're going to take interplanetary lessons in economics from alien beings. In case you're wondering, yes, that one did come from one of the original cast members of Star Trek. But listen, how is the future going to be different? It's a game that me and my wife play at home. And we wonder for the next 20 years when our kids are young adults, what world are they going to live in? And then how can we prepare them to step into that new reality for them? How is the future going to be different? A lot of us right now, are playing that game, just wondering when things are going to open back up. When, when are we going to be able to go sit down at a restaurant? When are we going to be able to go shopping? When are we going to be around people again? When are we going to get to worship together? What does the future hold? I tell you, it can be a little anxiety prone. Like the idea behind it, sometimes the image that I get is, is like we're all heading down the highway at 70 miles an hour. And we don't know what's around the next corner. And listen, that's scary. That's even terrifying if you dwell on it, if you think about it long enough. One psychologist that I came across put it this way. I thought it was helpful of why we all get afraid. A psychologist wrote that one of the most powerful influences on fear is uncertainty. The less we know, the more threatened we feel because lack of knowledge means we don't know what we need to know to protect ourselves. That's the truth, isn't it? It's the uncertainty around the future that causes 
fear that causes anxiety, that causes all these things to well up. And so what I'd like to do is take a look at a story in the Bible from Daniel chapter 2. I'll give you a minute to find it if you want to follow along in the Bible app. The words are going to be on the screen behind me, of course. But what we're going to do is take a look at at this story in Daniel chapter 2 is how one king wanted to know the future and God actually met him in that request. And I think as we read and as we learn how God met him in that request, what we're also going to simultaneously start to learn is how we can face our uncertain futures with a little more confidence even though we don't know what's around that next bend. As always, we have uh, small groups that are attached to these messages. So you can go to encounterchurch.org slash messages and you can follow along in some of the, some of the groups, uh, questions. If you're in a virtual small group that meets over Zoom, awesome. Go ahead and use those. Otherwise, if you just have some roommates in your house or maybe your family members, go ahead and, and, and take a look at those small group questions just to make this time together stretch and last as long as it possibly can. All right, from Daniel chapter 2, we're learning about an uncertain future and how to face it with confidence. We have to get all on the same page, though. And and, and what we do know is just how much we don't know. And so I just want to start off with a simple comment, simple phrase that's kind of all in the same place, is that the future is unknown to us. And we just don't know what the future is. The future is unknown to us. Daniel 2, starting off in verse 1, it says, And then the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his mind was troubled. And he couldn't fall asleep. So we got this new king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon, Old Testament, a very, very long time ago. And Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural, multiple dreams. And he was troubled. The Hebrew word that was written in there is pa'am. Pa'am, he was troubled. Pa'am means he was tossing and turning. Pa'am means that he was persistently plagued with these things. They were keeping him up at night. And worst of all, he had no idea why. The Taco Bell beef and bean burrito wasn't invented yet. So we had no idea why he was like indigestion up all night. You know, he, he, had, he didn't know, but it was just plaguing him. It was troubling him. It's just like beating his head up against the board. Like it's just, oh, it's so bad. Tossing and turning all night. Verse 2. And so the king did what kings did in those days. He summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. He had an army to help him out with this problem. Summoned all these guys to tell him what he, what he had dreamed. And when they came in and they stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. And so the astrologers, they answered the king, may the king live forever, tell your servants the dream and we'll interpret it. Like that's the deal. You tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. But there was a problem. There was a catch. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember his dream. Now that's somewhat relatable, isn't it? Researchers tell us that on average, you dream, have five dream episodes every single night. In fact, you have a dream episode, as we all do, every 90 minutes. Now, most of us were like, no way, that can't be true. I can't remember a single one of my five dreams that I had last night, and I slept pretty well. True. Recall is a different issue entirely, but the fact is that your brain cells sent up these stimuli, these messages, and your brain's cortex started trying to make sense of it all and try to unscramble, unjungle it all, the whole thing. And all these images came up. Now, most of the time, it doesn't make any sense to us. It's, it's, total, uh, it's total randomness. And, and so we don't remember any of it. Nothing sticks in our, in our brains. And so recall is there for the king. It was probably such a strange dream. He couldn't remember anything about it. He couldn't think 
about what it was, but it doesn't matter because he knew that he was having one. He actually knew that he was having the same one over and over and over again. And just because he couldn't remember it doesn't mean that he was going to let that hold him back. And so he comes up with a plan in light of it all. In verse 5, he writes that the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. So he's like, listen, you're the astrologers. You're the, enchant- you're the magicians. You tell me what my dream was and then you interpret it for me. If you don't, listen, I'll have you uh, yeah, killed. Your houses turned into rubble. But, verse 6, if you tell me the dream and explain it, You'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. It's it's your typical high risk, high reward sort of game. A lot at stake. Riches and fame if they get it right. Complete and utter disaster if they get it wrong. Only in this game, they didn't have much of a choice as to whether or not they were going to play. And so what the king was asking is something that we established with very early on, that the future that the king was asking for is entirely unknown to us. And so like, what were they supposed to do? As they respond to him in verse 10, the astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asked. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. No one No one can do this. King, what you're asking for is entirely outside the realm of possibility. Not that they didn't have options. They didn't have tactics to try to uncover the future at times. They did a few things back in those days. In fact, uh, one of the things that they did is they'd sacrifice an animal and they would hold up like the inside parts. And then if the inside parts, certain parts of the inside parts were to like jiggle and shimmy one way or it'd mean one thing or if they were to jiggle and wiggle another way it meant something else entirely and it's kind of funny it's ridiculous another thing that they had is, uh, is they take chickens and they put them inside this special magical box this crate for the chicken a little food in there and if the chicken went and aggressively and quickly went over to the food bowl and started eating it would be a good sign a good omen for the person asking for his future to be told but if the chicken went into that crate and didn't want to eat or maybe just slowly pecked at it it would be a bad omen or bad sign for the future. I guess you could say it was a foul way of telling the future. I know that you're laughing wherever you are, so I appreciate that one. But they had a lot of ways. We laugh at these things because they're ridiculous, right? And I get that. But before we laugh too hard, listen, we're like not that far off. We haven't learned much beyond what those astrologers said that day, that no one can tell the future. We still think we can The Atlantic magazine did a little article a while ago that said 125 million Americans still believe in astrology. Many of them are young, educated millennials. It's like this resurgence of people who believe that the patterns of the planets and the stars can tell them what their future holds. 70 million Americans every single day get up and read their horoscope. 7% of those actually change their behavior as a result of what their horoscope says. Which sounds like a small percentage until you think 5 million Americans change their behavior every single day based on a horoscope. Obviously, I don't think we've moved much beyond what those astrologers said in the time of Daniel 
in the Babylonian Empire thousands of years ago. No one, no one can tell the future. No one can provide the king with what he is asking. And so the king goes, listen, if you don't know the future <laughs> for me, I know the future for you. And so he sends some, uh, some army, some guards over and you know, knocks on the door and says, hey, the king's ready to make good on his promise. You couldn't tell him the dream and its interpretation, so he's going to do to you and your house is just exactly what he said he was going to do a moment earlier. But this one guy got wind of things. Daniel. And he said, whoa, whoa, wait a second. He talked to the king's guy, the guy in charge, and he said, hey, listen, I want an audience with the king. Go, can you go ahead, go back to the king, set something up for me. I'd like a shot at this. I've got an inside track. He's got, he's got a way that he might be able to see into the future. Listen, listen to what he has to say in verse 17. It says that Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 18, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And what follows is a song, is a prayer of praise that Daniel gave in response to that. Just to highlight something for us here, because I think this is important, is that biblically there's a difference between a dream and a vision. So a dream is something, those random firings of your brain cells to, to reboot, to restart, to rearrange everything that's kind of going on in your head to get ready for the next day and to recuperate from the, from the previous day. That's a dream. It's random and it doesn't always mean anything. A vision is a gift from God. While you're awake, while you're conscious, it's like God speaking, not necessarily auditorily, but, but visually God is speaking into your life. It's a vision. It's, it's from God. Now, sometimes they overlap, don't they? Like you see in the Bible that dreams sometimes mean things. Here, we see that dreams mean things. Uh, Joseph's story in Genesis, dreams mean some things. But, but listen, church, don't make the mistake of thinking like every single dream has some sort of divine origin and divine meaning that God is, is like using that to give you like a specific message. I'll give you an example of like another passage where this is true, is that God has a way of speaking throughout all kinds of media. God even spoke one time, through a donkey, through an animal. That's that the, the voice of God, like, like the donkey opened up and started speaking to his owner. But we don't go before like every donkey and be like, hey, listen, uh, should I take the job or should I marry the girl or accept the proposal? Uh, we don't do that with donkeys now. In the same way, we don't go to like every dream that took place and say, you know, does this mean I should leave the job, take the job, move across state? We don't do that all the time. But don't think... Don't think that God can't use it either. That God still very much could be behind this. In fact, the reason why Daniel praised God of heaven is the simple fact that even though the future is unknown to us, we established that already, the future is well known to God. And the future is well known to God because of his omniscience. That's a theological word. It means that he knows everything. It means that his knowledge is immediate, comprehensive, and without deterioration. God knows the future because he lives in the future. He makes the future. He made the past. He lives in the present. All of it, simultaneously, all of it, God holds at the same time. 
And so Daniel knows, hey, listen, even though I don't know how to tell the future, even though I don't know how to interpret this dream and tell the king what's about to happen, I know someone who does. And let me just ask my God, because he knows. And if he tells me, king, I can tell you, so just give me a minute. He prays on it. He believes he has this vision from God, along with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They together go to the king and say, hey, listen, this is what we discovered. Verse 25. Ariok, that's the king's guy now, the king's guy Ariok took Daniel to the king and at once said, I've found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, I love this, no. Like, he starts off with his comment with, no. Like, you don't understand, guys. You do not say that to a king. You don't say that to a king like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. You don't start off the first thing you say to this guy is no. You try to always find out how to make your answer yes. But Daniel serves a different king. First and foremost, Daniel serves a higher king. And so he's, he's standing before Nebuchadnezzar and he's standing before in confidence because he knows who stands behind him. And so listen to it again from verse 27. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he has asked about. And I love this in verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And he goes ahead and explains it. He goes, King, was this your dream? Did you maybe have a dream that there was a statue of a man and his head was made of gold and his shoulders were silver and arms? Did you have a dream that his, his belly or abs and and thighs was made of, of bronze, and his le legs were iron, and his, and his legs were bronze, and his feet were made of clay. Was that maybe your dream? And then, King, out of nowhere, did you have a dream that a rock came and crashed into those feet of clay, and they started to crumble and break apart? And the clay and the iron and the bronze and the silver and the gold all kind of collapsed into dust on itself. And then, King, did that rock start to grow? And it became a hill that became a mountain that filled the entire earth. And the king said, yeah, that's it. Exactly. You got my dream. Tell me, Daniel, now, what does it mean? And Daniel starts to unpack this thing. And Daniel says, I have good news. The, the king, the, the, the head of that statue is you, king. It's made of gold. And you're wondering, aren't you, about the future, about what happens after you. And so he says, king, you're the, the head made out of gold. And there's a, a kingdom that comes after you that's silver. And after that, that's bronze and then iron and then clay. And you can go through history and see exactly how this came about. Is after the Babylonian Empire, there was the Assyrian Empire, and then there was the Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, and then in the Roman Empire, a rock came out of nowhere and crashed into the feet. And a rock came after nowhere, and as the statues, the kingdoms of this world came crumbling down, 
the rock grew larger and larger, a mountain that filled the earth. And Daniel goes, that kingdom of Jesus Christ will never be taken away and will never move. And I love that, that dream and its interpretation. I love what it means for today. It's not about the future, so it's a little off topic, but I also just want to invite you to go to, go to the Brave series. We covered this one a couple of years ago on counterchurch.org slash brave. It's part two. It's called Surrender. You can hear way more about the kingdoms of the world and, and what that dream and the interpretations meant and how it's all coming about today. It's incredible, incredible stuff. But right now, the king wanted to know what the future held. The king wanted to know just what was about to happen. And Daniel comes and he interprets it for him and tells him this is exactly everything that happened. And sometimes, sometimes that happens, doesn't it? Sometimes in the biblical record, we have what's called predictive prophecies. These times where God says, this is going to happen. And then it does, exactly like he said it did. Some people even said, depending on how you measure, that up to a quarter of the Bible particularly the Old Testament, is that predictive prophecy. And some things have been fulfilled. Most things have been fulfilled. But there's a few yet that have yet to be fulfilled. For example, Jesus said, listen, I'm leaving right now, but I'm coming back. That's a prophecy, a predictive prophecy that has yet to come true. Jesus also said that there's going to be a time where all of us are going to have to give an account for our lives and stand before God in heaven. And try to explain ourselves. That's a predictive prophecy of something that's going to happen that hasn't happened yet. But the vast majority of these predictive prophecies have come about one single event. The vast majority of prophecies have been about what's probably the central defining point of the entire biblical story that God is telling over thousands of years with dozens of different authors. It's a story, it's a predictive prophecy around the Messiah, his birth, his ministry, his death, and even his resurrection. So we've got over 300 different predictive prophecies about the future, about what the Messiah would do, what he would be like, where he would come from, how he would die. Listen to just a few of them. It says that he would be born of a virgin. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be born in the tribe of Judah. He'd be His ministry would begin in Galilee, not Jerusalem, which was unusual. He would enter Jerusalem on donkey, the specifics. I love it. He would be betrayed by a friend, and the price that he'd be sold for is 30 pieces of silver. That he would be wounded and bruised, but that his bones would not be broken. He'd be crucified along with thieves. His garments would be torn, and they would gamble over them. And last, that he would rise from the dead is that throughout the story of God in the Bible, he wants you to know certain elements about the future. So even though the future is unknown to us, it's well known to God, the future is also made known to us. That God drops these breadcrumbs and says, there's a few things that I want you to know. You can know a few things, the important things about the future. Why? Because. Because the future makes God known to us. That's the point. That's the point that God wants to drive around. The point is that God wants you to know something, not about the future events. He wants you to know something about him. He wants to be known. He wants you to be in relationship with him. He wants you to to trust him so much. That you would surrender your life and your hopes and your dreams, your ambitions. You surrender all those things over to him. 
That's why he gave us Jesus Christ. That's the point of, of the incarnation, the point of God becoming human being, the point of God becoming a man to walk around in our shoes, to experience life as we know. He came here so that he could show us and be known. And so you could sit in the front row of his teaching and you could say, that guy, he's Jesus. He's God with skin on. And because I know him so well, I can also, I can trust him. The point of these predictive prophecies, the point of future telling in the Bible, the point of reading the Bible with this hope of what's coming isn't to know some certain events coming up. It isn't to be aware of the events. It's to adore the God behind the events. The point of predicting some of these things is not simply to inform us of what's going to happen, but to conform us to the will of God. The point isn't to wow us with some against-all-odds predictions. The point is for us to surrender our lives in worship before him. I brought up that image that a lot of us are feeling right now. That it feels like we're going 70, 80 miles an hour in the dark down the highway with our headlights off. We don't know what's around the next corner. And it's scary. It is. But this much I can promise you, church. That whatever's around that next corner, God is there to meet you. Whatever lies ahead, God is waiting with you. And he wants to be known by you. I want to end up, I want to share this story. One of my favorite historical figures. She was a little girl in uh, 1940s Germany. And her family did an incredible thing by hiding Jews from the Nazis coming through her country, the Netherlands. And she hid people away with her family until one day the dreaded knock at the door came. They were found out. And so her family was taken away, and of course the people that they were hiding, many of them lost their lives that day. She was sent to a concentration camp where unspeakable atrocities, brutality was inflicted upon her. Coming out of that experience, that horrific experience, with her faith still intact, Corey Ten Boom had the courage to offer you and I today this wisdom when she once wrote, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. That's the point. You don't know what's around that next corner. But church, never be afraid to trust an unknown future into the hands of a God who wants to be known by you so badly. If you haven't already, I'd love for you just to take a moment and pray in your living room or car, wherever you might be, Pull over if you're listening to this on a podcast and take a moment to ask God to help you surrender your life to him. Start off by just thanking him for all the different ways that he made himself and his future known to you. And then to start turning over your life into his hands. 
fact, let's do that right now. Our gracious God, we want to surrender our lives and our hearts and our hopes and our dreams over to you. God, show us what this is like. Point out an area of our life that we're holding back. We need to surrender to you. Because God, you have gone to such great lengths, literally from heaven to earth, to be known and to be adored. To be the one worthy of worship. God, we don't know what our future holds, but we know you hold the future. And we know that you're there to meet us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.